0: The title of this message tonight is The Possibility of Prayer. Uh, Not necessarily something we might have thought of from this passage, but one that I hope you see is very fitting. When we look at this world, one inescapable fact of this world is the reality of pain. Our world is a world, as our catechism says, of sin and misery. This is actually the fundamental tenet of the religion of Buddhism, that life is suffering. Uh, you might, I've heard sociologists talk about how you'll have people that are so skeptical that they'll deny everything is real. Maybe we're just brains in a vat. Um, they're skeptical about everything, yet they can never truly deny the reality of their own pain. It's an inescapable fact of life. And there's a sense in which we walk through this world like little children. Little children are very vulnerable. Vulnerable to pain and to trouble of all sorts. Uh, There's a lot of things that are dangerous when you're small. But the natural instinct in a young child when they are in trouble or have come to a place of pain, their natural instinct in there is to run to their parents. To go to someone greater and more powerful for help. That's the instinct of a young child. My, my professor, Dr. Joel Beakey, often has told a story of when he was a teenager, his father came to him and he said, Joel, do you know what is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever? And he wisely refrained from answering. And he said simply this, The believer always has a place to go. The believer always has a place to go. And in this world of pain and of suffering and trouble, We as humans have something within us that recognizes we need to go somewhere with that. We're insufficient and incapable in and of ourselves of dealing with this. And so there is an impulse. And so the beautiful truth for the child of God is that as little children, we have resources with which to walk through pain and suffering in our lives. This privilege of going to our Father is the privilege of prayer. And we can think of prayer as as relational, communicative access to our Heavenly Father. And it's the infinite privilege of the children of God. And our text tells us about the possibility of prayer. We take it for granted that prayer is possible. And this scene of the dedication of the temple strongly speaks about the possibility of prayer. Prayer is a resource that the Christian is equipped with in order to face a world of sin and misery. So I hope we can see this in this text this evening. So first, let's uh, recap some of what we read earlier. As we looked at all those passages, we're going to run through, and I'm going to recap some parts and try to draw out some highlights. For the length, we're not going to be able to look at every verse, every amazing part, but I want us to see this theme arising, the possibility of prayer. So, let's remember this scene. This is during the Feast of Tabernacles in the month of September. It's a seven-day feast, and Solomon has timed the dedication of the temple for this great celebratory feast. We've been reading in the last couple of weeks how the temple, this magnificent structure has been constructed, and Solomon gathers all the leaders of the nation and just tons of people. Everyone that can come wants to be in Jerusalem. This is a big event, the dedication of the temple. And it's not just a big civil event, it's a religious event. There is sacrifices that, um, our text said in verse 5, you could look there if you want, verse 5, that they were sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Now, boys and girls, think of how, how high do you think you can count. Pretty high. I remember one time as a kid, I just saw how high I could count. I think I got to like a bit over a thousand. And I was pretty proud of that. But this is, you couldn't even count How many animals were there being sacrificed? This is a massive celebration. And what's the main event? It is the Ark of the Covenant being brought into the temple. The Ark holding those tablets of the law, the primary symbol of God's presence with his people Israel. An Ark that's never had a permanent home. It wandered around in the tabernacle for years It actually hasn't even been in the tabernacle for a hundred years at this point. The tabernacle's over here. The ark ends up through a bunch of scenarios. It's in Jerusalem in a booth that David built for it. It's been in Jerusalem for 30 years in this random place. But now it's being brought up into the temple in Jerusalem. And the people are excited. The presence of God, this symbol, is getting a permanent resting place among the people. And so, when the priests put this ark in the most holy place, what happens? Look again at verse 10. When the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So, did God like what was going on here? Yes, because he shows up in, in a symbol of a glorious cloud. Like that cloud that first appeared to Israel to lead them out of Egypt through the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This cloud comes and it so fills the temple that the priests can't even go inside because they can't see anymore. It's darkened the whole thing. It's as if God is saying, you've seen the ark, now there's no more to see. Just a darkness, but yet an incredible sight of the Lord. Could you imagine being in that crowd? You literally see a cloud fill the house of God. And so every eye turns to King Solomon, who's standing before the people. What's he going to say? How does he respond? And Solomon gives a short speech recounting to the people God's covenant-keeping, promise-keeping faithfulness. He says in verse 15, as a summary, the Lord God of Israel is worthy of praise because he has fulfilled what he promised to my father David. So, what did the Lord promise to David? He promised that there would be a house for him. He promised him that his son would build him a house and that his son would sit on his throne and that his throne would be established when his sons walked in righteousness. And against all odds, Solomon has constructed a glorious, beautiful house for the name of the Lord, just as God promised. He doesn't talk long because Solomon quickly turns to prayer and praise at this magnificent sight of the Lord. Solomon's long prayer here is the primary emphasis of this passage. It's sandwiched right in the middle in a way to emphasize it. Some commentators have even argued that this prayer of Solomon's here is the climax of the whole Old Testament. This is an incredible scene. And there's much we can learn from this prayer. Solomon begins by exalting God's incomparable faithfulness. Look again at verse 23. He says, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant And showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. He says, God, you keep your promises. You keep covenant for your people. And then he continues, look at verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house I have built. Solomon knows that God is immeasurably great. The vast expanse of the universe, that, that we don't even know what the limits are of at this point, even that cannot contain God. So Solomon knows that God doesn't actually live in the temple. Okay? B- boys and girls, God didn't live in the temple. It was the place where his name dwelt. And so Solomon reckons that God dwells in heaven, but yet has condescended that his name would dwell in this house. And so here's what he asks God to do. This is a core theme of this whole prayer. Look at verses 28 to 30. He says, God, you are so great. You are so big. Yet, have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, and listen in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. This prayer expresses hope in what the temple represents, namely the possibility of, Of prayer. Because you see, this earthly temple, it represents access into the heavenly sanctuary. Okay, The earthly temple represents the access that God's people have into the heavenly sanctuary. And so Solomon is is asking that God's ears would be open, that his eyes would be looking at what goes on in the temple. Because God has chosen the temple to be a place where his name dwells. And this is a refrain you hear again and again in this passage. Fourteen times in this chapter, the temple is referred to the house for the name of the Lord. Okay, Why is this significant? Why does it matter that this is the house of the name of the Lord? And how is this connected to prayer? Well, this is significant because knowing someone's name implies the ability to call on them. Okay, if we were all at the back after church in that big huddle, and someone just walked an aisle and said, hey, you, you, you're probably not going to be successful. Unless you know someone's name, it's hard to call upon them. Uh, This reminded me, I don't know if you guys have this happen around your dinner tables, but growing up, the uh, common thing at our house was my youngest brother, Kalen, would... Always ask for things to be passed, but never ask who should be passing them. So he'd get frustrated and he'd be like, um, I said pass the potatoes. And we'd say, Kaelin, no one knows who you're talking to when you just say pass the potatoes. You have, to say, you have to look at who the potatoes are near and say, JC, can you pass the potatoes? Because then when we hear our name, we perk up and go, oh, that's me. I have the potatoes, I'll pass them down. That knowing someone's name means you can call on that person for help, And this is especially um, significant in the ancient world, which was largely polytheistic, which meant that each tribe, each people group, had their own god called by their own name. We see names of gods all, at all different places in the Old Testament, and they all called on the name of that local god, hoping for help, that the name of that lord would help them. Because they would say, that is the God we know. The God that's called by this name. But the problem is that all of those are not actually gods. They are false gods that can never truly, fully help or save. And so the incredible blessing that comes to Abraham is that the true God, the one true and living God, reveals himself to Abraham and says, I am the one you should call on. We read of when he reveals himself to Moses, again, that he has revealed his name to Israel. His covenant name, Yahweh. And in revealing that, he's saying, I am the God you can call on that hears and can actually answer prayer. And as if to reinforce again and again that Yahweh is the only true God He judges every other god they come into contact with. This is the significance of the plagues in Egypt. That God is judging their gods. Showing them to be powerless and useless. And he delivers them out through the Red Sea. And again and again in the wilderness, all the gods of the peoples in the land fall to the one true God, Yahweh. The true God showed Israel his name. And when they know his name, they can call on the name of the Lord. And that's what religion is summarized as in the Old Testament. Calling on the name of the Lord. And so when, when I say that the temple represents the possibility of prayer, what I mean is that the temple is the place of God's name. So when prayer is offered towards the temple, okay, you might have noticed in all those different scenarios, a lot of times it says when someone prays towards the temple. And we think, isn't that kind of superstitious? Why would you have to pray facing a certain direction? It wasn't the facing the direction. The significance there is that praying towards the temple is praying with faith in what it represents. God's meeting his people. Praying with the temple in mind is praying in faith. It's praying with the idea that God has condescended to reveal himself to us and allow people to call on him. It's faith that he hears. The temple shows all Israel that God... The true God, Yahweh, is willing to hear their prayers. That's what the temple means. This God is willing to hear and answer prayer. And now, if the the hearing of prayer is good, the answering of prayer is even better. Look at verse 30. Here's the end of the prayers. Listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. Forgive. Forgiveness is the most fundamental basic need of man in his fallen estate. And it's only on the basis of forgiveness that we can have a reconciled relationship with God. And so there's a sense in which you could think that the prayer for forgiveness is the prayer that makes all other prayers possible. Prayer, being forgiven is the foundation on which you can build a whole prayer life knowing that God will hear and accept all your prayers. And so in a second way this is another idea why the temple is connected to prayer because the temple is the place that shows forgiveness. It's the place of sacrificial atonement where animals are substituted symbolically in place of man where blood is shed showing the Israelites that God will forgive their sins. Not that these sacrifices actually forgave the sins. But in symbolizing the work of Christ, faith in what these symbols represent, the atonement, substitution, forgiveness comes to the people through the work that goes on at the temple. And so again, as the dwelling place of God's name, but also as the place of forgiveness, the temple encourages God's people to pray. You could say it makes prayer possible. Now with this possibility of prayer, knowing that they have the name of the Lord, that there is forgiveness for their sins, how might the people use this privilege of prayer? Well, let's consider again those seven various scenarios that we read. Seven times of trouble where the people of Israel would call on the name of the Lord. These um, these different trials are some due to Israel's own sin, kind of like they've got themselves into trouble for what they've done. Sometimes it's just the, the oppression of others coming towards them. Sometimes it's just the, the sin that comes into a fallen world, like lack of rain and famine. Or the worst imagined scenario, the last one, exile and captivity. And what they're told in all these scenarios, how should the people respond in their troubles? There's three things that pop up again and again. The first is that they need to turn from their sin That is, they need to repent. Secondly, they need to acknowledge God's name. That's the significant one. It says they acknowledge your name, right? The name of the true God. And pray and plead towards the house. That is, call on the name of the Lord with faith in the true God. And so when the people repent of their sins, look and acknowledge God and pray to Him, what's the response Again, there's a pattern. We read again and again how God hears, forgives, and acts. It says God hears in heaven. Remember, the temple's been destroyed, so they need to trust that he will hear from where he really dwells, in heaven. He will forgive their sins, and then act to do what is necessary. We read whether to judge, to teach, to bless, to recompense, or restore. As one commentator writes, the idea is that God would act to put things right for his people. Whatever their need, God would act to make things right. And so here's the big idea. When prayer is offered with faith in God's name and coupled with the heart of repentance, God both hears and responds. Because this is consistent with his character and his covenant relationship with his people. They can trust that God will hear their prayers. And I want us to consider again this last scenario. That one where the people are taken into exile and captivity due to their sins. Because this was the actual real life scenario of the first people to read this book. It was written to an Israel that had actually been cast out of their land. With their temple destroyed and had been kidnapped and put in a foreign enemy land. And so as they read, this rings true. Consider this beginning. Verse 46. If they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of an enemy far off or near. Think they're reading going, just wait, that's us. We've been carried away captive into the land of an enemy. And so this promise coming up Wow, this would ring true. Verse 47. Yet, if they turn their heart in the land to which they've been carried captive, and repent, and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned, and have acted perversely and wickedly, If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive. And pray to you toward their land which you gave their fathers. The city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their plea. And maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. And all their transgressions that they have committed against you. And grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive. That they may have compassion on them. What an incredible promise to a despairing people. People whose temples have been destroyed. People thinking we're too far from God. We've been sent away from our religion. It's hopeless for us. We've sinned too badly. We're too far gone. God can never reach us here In this place, but they're reminded that God doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands, but He hears in heaven, and God never rejects a repentant heart, one that looks to Him in faith. And we know the end of that story that the people do repent, and after 70 years in exile, their captors do have compassion on them and allow them to return to their land and to rebuild. God is faithful. And after reminding the people and praying this way, Solomon again, he rises from his knees and praying. And he again blesses the assembly, recounting God's promise, keeping character, charging the people to walk with the Lord. And the scene ends as it began with um, thousands and thousands and thousands of sacrifices. And ending with feasting. And let's think again the last verse in verse 66 how on the eighth day he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. You see, this was all of God's goodness. The people of Israel didn't deserve to have a God who revealed his name to them. They didn't deserve to have a God that would allow them to petition him to actually forgive have compassion, and show the mercy. All of this, everything the temple represents, is an act of God's goodness. So we could say that the possibility of prayer is the product of grace. The possibility of prayer is the product of grace. And access to the throne of grace is one of the greatest privileges in the world. And just as God at that time was pleased to have his name dwell in the temple, so in a much greater way the God of heaven was pleased to come and have his name dwell in an actual man. The Lord Jesus Christ who revealed the name of the Father to his people. Jesus is the greater temple and is the greatest revelation of God on earth. So no longer does that earthly temple represent that point where heaven and earth meet. Where people can commune with God. But Christ himself is the mediator. The go-between between between heaven and earth. And so we can know that God hears prayers now. Not that are prayed directed towards the temple. But prayers that are prayed through Jesus Christ. That is, in his name. Because all good now. Every good gift from God that we could hope for only comes through Christ. We think of the greatest gift of salvation. This is what Peter says in Acts 4.12. He says of Jesus, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name than the name of Jesus. Only through him are prayers acceptable to God and so he can say in John 14:13 to his disciples that whatever you ask in my name this will I do that the father may be glorified in the son if you ask me anything in my name I will do it and maybe some of you need to be reminded of this again today cuz I know there's a whole host of instances where you might be in difficulty Perhaps you feel like you've sunk into a pit that you've dug for yourself. That your own sins, your own sinful lusts and desires in your heart have trapped you and bound you and you feel stuck. And you feel um, full of guilt and far from God. Or maybe you feel like you're in a time of trouble due to the sins of others against you. Various types of abuse or oppression and suffering. And you feel like it has pushed you low. Or maybe it's a time of trouble due to this world. The pains of health and sickness. Economic catastrophe and disaster. You might feel like those exiles. Like you're just far from the presence of God. Far from the help of God. Unsure if you even know how to call out to God. If he will even hear you in your lowest state. You think, how could I even go to God? Well, we're reminded again tonight that God hears all prayers that come to him in the name of Jesus, which is through faith in his name. Our God is not difficult to reach. He's not like the gods of the Baals. You remember that story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, where those calling out to Baal... They're trying so hard. They're cutting themselves and shouting and dancing for hour after hour, just hoping that he would hear them. Baal, please hear us and listen. But what does Elijah do? He calls on the name of the Lord, and God answers with fire. You don't need to go to work to have God hear you. You don't need to go on some dramatic pilgrimage to a holy land, hoping that God will hear you in a special spiritual place. Our God has a name that is simply to be called upon. Because God responds to faith, to the broken and believing heart. And here's the amazing thing. If you go to God in Christ, through faith in Christ, praying in his name, then God can no more reject your prayers than he can reject his own son. Because you see, by faith in Christ, you are connected To Christ. And because you are in Christ, God cannot reject you because God will never reject him. And you can be sure that God will hear you because God always hears him. When we become a part of Christ through faith in his name, every prayer we offer is accepted as if it was prayed from the lips of Christ. Himself. God will hear you because God always hears him. And so we can confidently say with the psalmist, declare that truth that many of us have heard so many times, that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven on earth. In a world of pain and suffering, many will not know where to look for help, but the believer always has a place to go, because the believer knows that his help is in the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The pathway to the throne of grace through the work of Jesus has been opened to us. He's the one in whose name we trust. And therefore, he is the one in whose name we pray. Prayer is possible because it can be made in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that a way has been opened to your very sanctuary. A way of access has been made to your very throne room through our Lord Jesus Christ, our forerunner who has torn the curtain of the temple and entered into heaven on our behalf and appears before your throne on our behalf. And Lord, so though we feel low and unworthy to come to you ourselves, hear us, we pray, for his sake. Forgive us of our sins for Jesus' sake. Accept us even as you accept him. That we would know, as Jesus prayed, that the love with which you love the Son would be in us. That Christ himself would be in us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.